Well, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. We are nearing the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. His ministry in the region of Galilee was the first part of his public ministry. And beginning in 9 verse 50, uh, chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus will transition to go to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he will do what he ultimately came this earth, to this earth to do, to suffer and die the cursed death on the cross. So please turn your attention to Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Where the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, think with me uh, for a moment what vice I am about to describe. This vice is a vice that we all struggle with. It's a vice that we are very blind to in ourselves, but keenly aware of in others. And furthermore, when we see this vice in others, we abhor it. To what vice am I referring? 
The vice that I'm referring to is the vice of pride. Now, as you recall, last week we considered this transfiguration passage. Jesus took uh, Peter, James, and John onto this mountain. And on this mountain, Jesus was transfigured. His glory shone forth. Moses and Elijah showed up. But at the end of the passage, we witnessed this cloud which overcame them. And the voice of God the Father spoke out and said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen. Listen to him. The disciples were called to listen to Jesus because of who he is. Jesus demands that his words be heeded. Well, in our passage before us this evening, in these four narratives, what we see is the disciples' failure to listen. And the root, the cause of their failure is their pride. Their pride is what's plugging their ears from being able to truly listen to Jesus. And the type of listening that Jesus is speaking about is not a mere comprehension of syllables, of semantics, but rather a listening that leads, that produces a change in the will, obedience. Thus, what I would like us to do this evening is to to walk through this passage and note the various forms that the disciples' pride takes. This pride doesn't come in some monolithic way. It takes on various forms, different, various shapes and and sizes, as it were. So I'd like us to walk through and see the the various manifestations of the disciples' pride, which is is causing them not to be able to listen. And as we do so, I hope that we can see ourselves in light of this passage and feel convicted in the ways in which we are prideful, much like the disciples. So that we might humble ourselves and truly listen, listen to Jesus himself. Well, the first area of pride I'd like us to to focus our, our hearts and minds on that we see in the disciples is their faithlessness. Now, this passage begins with Jesus, James, and Uh, John and Peter coming down from the mountain where the transfiguration had occurred. Almost immediately as they get off this mountain, this man approaches them. This man comes to Jesus and says, I have my only child is is afflicted with this demon. This demon is tormenting my child. And the rest of your disciples, they've been impotent. They've been unable to help him at all. Now this is striking. Recall what we read at the beginning of chapter 9. Jesus gave his disciples authority over all demons and the ability to heal diseases. So why are the disciples now impotent? Jesus had given them all authority over unclean spirits and demons but they're not able to exercise authority over this unclean spirit that's afflicting this, this young child. Well, Jesus seems to root the cause of their impotence in their faithlessness. 
Notice what he says in verse 41. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. No doubt the, the reference of this denunciation is much broader than just the disciples, including the crowds as well. But I don't think the disciples are exempt from this rebuke of Jesus. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. Luke doesn't tell us in any more explicit terms what the faithlessness of these disciples looked like, but it may have took the form of this independent, autonomous spirit. They began to think that they could do this on their own. They didn't really need to be dependent upon their master. In fact, they, they kind of liked the recognition and notoriety that they received by casting out demonic spirits, by miraculously healing people's bodies. In fact, in the parallel passage in Mark's gospel, Jesus connects this to prayer. He says, this kind of spirit can only be cast out with prayer. Which seems to suggest that the disciples were not doing this in prayer. And what is prayer? Well, prayer is that posture of dependence and humility before God. The reason the disciples were impotent is because they were not showing forth a humble and dependent spirit which is exemplified in prayer. Well, no doubt there are many differences between us and the disciples. No one here has been given the right to exercise authorities over demons and spirits to miraculously heal diseases. However, we do struggle with the same thing that the disciples were guilty of here in this narrative. This faithlessness. Now, when I use this term faithlessness, I don't mean as if one day we can wake up and be void of faith. No, the Bible is abundantly clear that those who have true faith will persist in that faith. Rather, what I mean is that we can have this independent and autonomous spirit. This spirit which claims a sort of sovereignty over our lives. Now let me ask you, when, when something comes up in, in your life, what's your first reaction? Is it to do things to try to change your circumstance? Is it to, to become anxious, to ruminate over the situation? Or is it to pray? Oftentimes, if we're honest with ourselves, prayer is probably on the bottom of our list of things to do when something comes up because it's not pragmatic, it's not practical. It doesn't seem to do anything. And so our prayer lives are a good litmus test to see whether we have this spirit, this independent, autonomous spirit. Oftentimes, we functionally live as if our doing, our rumination, is more effective than praying to the creator and sustainer of all things. We functionally live as if we are the captain of our souls, the master of our fates. And prayer is an act of humility. It's a renunciation of sovereignty over our lives. 
And so let me ask you, do you believe that your God indeed ordains everything that comes to pass for your good? Do you believe, as our catechism says, that whatever evil he sends upon you in this veil of tears, he will turn for your good because he's able to do it, being your almighty God and faithful Father? Do you believe that your prayer is effective? That it does something? Or do you merely give lip service to these things, but functionally live as if they're not true? Functionally live as if you are the master of your life and fate. So this passage is telling us, first and foremost, that true listening involves a a spirit of dependence and humility upon God, which is exemplified, exemplified when we pray. Well, the second area of pride that the disciples show forth here in this passage is this desire and attempt to fashion Jesus to their own liking. Now, if you look with me in your Bibles in verse 44, Jesus says to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. As you know, Jesus has already told his disciples in this chapter that he came to this earth to suffer, die, and rise from the dead. He's saying, when are you going to get it? Let these words sink into your ears. I have not come to give you political freedom, to set up this earthly kingdom like you're anticipating. I'm going to be handed over the powers of this age. I'm going to die. Now, it's not that the disciples literally could not understand, comprehend the words that Jesus was telling them. No, they could do that. The disciples were unwilling to accept the words that Jesus was saying. The disciples had assumptions about what Jesus was going to be like, what he was going to do, and rather than surrendering their assumptions to Jesus and letting his words determine how they were going to view him, they made Jesus have to conform to their assumptions. So they couldn't accept the fact that God would send his Messiah into this world to suffer and die. They wanted to be at the right hand of Jesus, in power and glory, in this, this earthly theocracy that Christ was going to set up. They didn't want to accept this. Now you see in verse 45, Luke tells us that their understanding, their true understanding of Jesus' words were concealed to them. Notice the passive voice. It was concealed to them. Well, you, you might be wondering... How can, we, how can we blame them? God or some other force was causing them not to be able to understand, truly understand these words of Jesus. Well, let's consider this a few moments. What is the natural fallen state of humanity? Well, it's a state of prideful rebellion against their creator. The first sin of our parents in the garden was the sin of pride. And arguably every sin since then is rooted in that sin of pride. 
And so left to our own devices, our condition is one of prideful rebellion to our creator. And so if this is indeed a divine passive, we shouldn't think of this as, as God actively concealing and causing the disciples not to be able to understand. Rather, God has chosen not to illuminate their hearts. God has chosen to leave them to themselves, and if their natural condition is prideful rebelling, a suppression of the truth, of course they're not going to understand. This also explains why it took until Pentecost for them to fully understand the words of Jesus. Because Pentecost was when the Spirit came and illuminated their hearts to the true words of Jesus. Well, brothers and sisters, we also, we also have this propensity to fashion Jesus to our own liking as well. We have to admit that we all have assumptions and presuppositions that we bring to the text of Scripture. Whenever you open the Bible, you have assumptions that you're bringing to whatever passage you are reading. And we have to admit that. It's inevitable. But once we admit that, we have two options. We can either surrender our assumptions to the scrutiny of Scripture and let Scripture determine the veracity of those assumptions, or we can stand above Scripture and make God and His Word line up with our assumptions, our rationality. Similar to what the disciples did. They had this, this idea of what Jesus was going to do and they wanted to fashion Jesus to their idea rather than surrendering to Jesus' words. And one way, one form that this takes is you know, when, you're, when we're thinking and reasoning through Scripture and we come to a particular difficult doctrine of Scripture and we respond by saying, I just, I just could not believe in a God who would do X, Y, or Z or would say this or that. I just can do it. And usually what happens is that person will either depart from God, I want nothing to do with God, or they just refashion God to their own image and liking. They construct a God that, that's more palatable to them. They want to fashion a Jesus to their own liking. But even more common is, is when we want to pick and choose which parts of Scripture are authoritative for us. We may really like the salvation by grace alone, but what about the, the teaching which we find throughout the New Testament that Christians are to belong to a local church? That if you belong to the universal church, that inevitably means you belong to a particular local body of, of Christ here on earth. It's very easy for us to be selective. But what parts of Scripture we want to uphold and which ones we just want to put off in the closet and not worry about? And so... True listening involves becoming servants to Jesus and his word rather than making Jesus and his word servants to us, to our reason, to our assumptions. Well, the third area of pride that the disciples exemplify is their striving after worldly greatness. 
Luke moves on in verse 46 and we witness this, uh, this episode where the disciples are arguing amongst themselves. Who is the greatest? And Jesus hearing this argument and knowing the, the thoughts and reasoning of their hearts, he, he calls a child up to him and places him at his side, which would have been a distinguished place, a place of honor. And he says this, he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me and the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the greatest. Now in Judaism, spending time with children was not viewed as a profitable or at least a uh, sophisticated use of time especially when you were wanting to gain a reputation in society. Uh, there was a saying in the Mishnah, which was a compilation of, of Jewish sayings and, and writings. It says this, morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tearing in places where men of the common people assemble destroy a man. And then when we think about the Roman world, which also existed in the first century context, one ordinarily would not welcome a child if they were wanting to gain a high standing in society. The Roman world had a great, great uh, social pyramid, and it was customary that you would only extend a greeting to those who are of the same social class as you or of a higher social class as you. But you would never extend a greeting to someone who was beneath you, below you. That person was a servant. They were the ones who would wash the feet at the dinner party. They were not the ones who would be extended a greeting, a welcome. And children were at the very lowest rung of this social pyramid. They were literally servants of all. There was no one beneath them. And thus Jesus, as he welcomes this child in this place of prominence at his side, is is telling the disciples in a very vivid picture, that's greatness. That's what you are to be pursuing as your goal. Servants of all. Servants of all. Jesus flipping their paradigm on its head. They're wanting the world's definition of, of greatness, power, prestige, wealth. And Jesus is saying, now look to the child. Being a servant of all, that's what it means uh, to be great. This is one of the things that, that Martin Luther discovered in, in the Reformation era. This idea of, of the fact that both the Bible and the world, they'll use words, the same words, but the Bible will give a definition of that word that's completely antithetical to how the world defines it. And we see that here with this idea of greatness. The world defines greatness as having a, a healthy dose of power, prestige, wealth, notoriety. And Jesus is sort of throwing all of that out and saying, no, to be great is to be to meek, humble, to be a servant of everybody, no matter who they are. This is that, that goal that the disciples are to be pursuing. And you know, there are many ways in which 
the contemporary church has, has fallen prey to the same temptation as the disciples. You think of the, the whole a celebrity uh, pastor and, and uh, a paradigm that we see in, in many evangelical churches today where the pastor is, is not really a shepherd but a pop culture icon. They don't have a congregation but they have a following. They're not servants of all but they have power, prestige, wealth, reputation. So true listening occurs by adopting Jesus' definition of greatness. Servants of all. Servants of all. The last area of pride that we see in these disciples is in their competitiveness. In verse 49, the disciples, uh, they come to Jesus and, and John says, Jesus, we found someone who is casting out spirits in your name, but we made sure to stop them. And Jesus responds and says, don't stop them. What are you doing? If they're not against us, they're for us. These disciples, they didn't like it that other people were able to do what they alone had been doing. They wanted the sole possession of doing ministry in Jesus' name and casting out spirits and healing people of diseases. They liked that. They didn't want to see other people doing what they were doing. See, their competitiveness. Competitiveness over something you should not have been competitive about. It's on this area of pride that, that C.S. Lewis is so, so good as he describes pride as, as being inherently competitive. He notes the fact that uh, pride does not take pleasure in the thing itself, but only in having more of that thing than the next person. Oftentimes we'll speak of, of being prideful in, in, in our wealth or beauty or talents, abilities, intelligence, list could go on. What we really mean is that we are taking pride in being wealthier, smarter, prettier, more talented than the next person. Pride doesn't take satisfaction in the thing itself. It only takes satisfaction having more than the next person. So think for a moment of something that you are tempted to be prideful about. Maybe something that you possess, maybe some talent, ability that you have. Now think for a moment if everybody in your life was equal to you in that area or superior to you in that area. Would you take as much satisfaction over that area of your life? You might, you might say yes, but I almost guarantee it would be diminished. We see a pride is inherently competitive. The satisfaction comes in looking over the shoulder and being able to see our superiority in comparison to others. This is exactly what the disciples were doing. They loved being the only ones who had this ability to do ministry in Jesus' name. They didn't want other people to be equal to them or even superior to them in this. That would take the satisfaction out of it. Lewis also goes on to talk about how this pride is being, uh, this, this aspect of pride, this competitive aspect of pride, inevitably leads to enmity. It divides us. He talks about how other vices, they'll, they'll bring people together. 
drunkenness, unchastity. There'll be some fellowship among those, those sins and vices. But pride is inherently divisive. It's, it's competitive. It's the sin that separates us from God with our first parents. It's the sin that continues to separate humanity. Whether you look at families, friendships, churches. So much of the division in this world comes from pride. This unhealthy competitiveness. And the solution? Uh, Lewis talks about the solution to this aspect of pride is to forget ourselves. Others drawing upon Lewis have paraphrased him as saying it's not about thinking highly of yourself or thinking uh, of yourself in a diminished form, but just forgetting about yourself. Forgetting about your ego. Another author drawing on Lewis says, you know, you're eager to sort of be like your big toe. How many times do you think about your big toe throughout the day? Unless it's in pain, hardly at all. And that's the solution. That's the antidote to this competitive pride that we all struggle with. We are to forget about ourselves and our ego and focus on the other. Well, as we wrap things up, I'd like to hopefully bring this together. I, I mentioned how last week we considered these words of God the Father as he spoke forth from this cloud and said, this is my son, listen to him. Disciples are called to a life of listening. Listening. And today, in these four narratives, we saw that the thing that's plugging the disciples' ears, as it were, that's causing them not to be able to listen, is their pride. Their pride, which has took, taken the form of, of, of this independent, autonomous spirit of fashioning a Jesus after their own likeness, of taking the world's definition of greatness and, and being competitive. So we, we have to forsake those things, and this is a call to be humble. A call to be humble. Well, this leads us then to the important question of how. How do we become humble so that we can truly listen to Jesus? not have plugged ears like these disciples. Let me remind you of the text we, have, we had heard earlier in the service, the Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. The answer to how we become humble is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. He came to this earth not just to justify us, not just to save us, to redeem us from our sin, but he came so that his humble mindset might become ours by virtue of our union with him. So for those of you who are trusting in Christ, who are united to Christ by the Spirit, you can be assured that this Christ who has begun a good work in you will carry it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 